0: Hi, this is Don from Mayleaf and welcome to another episode of Tea Lifted Conversations, our series of informal conversations over tea about a wide variety of topics which hopefully engage, entertain and inspire. In today's conversation, I'm having a more freeform conversation with my friend Adam Vani. Adam is a co-founder of Jar Kombucha, one of the first commercial kombucha brands to break onto the London scene in 2016. Although kombucha is one of his passions, Adam has always been deeply interested in the exploration of consciousness, working for many years with yoga, meditation, breath work and plant medicines. I love chatting with Adam as we both share a love of philosophizing and connecting with others about the nature of reality, what it means to be human and how we can be the best versions of ourselves. If you would like to support this podcast then please go and indulge yourself in some of our pinnacle tea and teaware by visiting mayleaf.com. I hope that you enjoy the conversation. Hey Adam, how are you?
1: Yeah, I'm good, man.
0: How are you? Yeah, man. It's always good to speak to you. Uh, unfortunately, we can't do it person to person right now. But uh, I do very much enjoy sitting down and chatting with you about anything and everything. And I thought, let's just see how this goes and see if we can record it and see if it'll uh, it'll be something to entertain the people out there. Obviously, mostly with our podcast, we tend to focus on more specific topics, but you know, it's all about tea lifted conversations and I always have a great conversation with you. So I'm really happy that you agreed to come on and,
1: uh, and have this conversation with me. Thanks, man. It's uh, it's a pleasure to, to speak to you again. It's always quality over quantity with us. Like, you know, it never really matters how many times you meet up, but when you do that, you make the most of it. So I feel like there's always such like depth and substance and like, there's like in essence to our conversations that leave me feeling like in sort of like, um, a space of wonder and curiosity for days afterwards. I'm like, man, and I just think about these things we've talked about. And, you know, there are a few people in my life that I have those conversations with and, uh, yeah, just really grateful to be able to catch up again.
0: Yeah, no, I feel exactly the same way. It's uh, it's always enlightening to have a conversation with you. Why don't you, uh, Introduce yourself a little bit. I've already done the intro about you, but uh, maybe you could focus a little bit on your tea journey. Since everybody here listening probably is a uh, quite fanatical about tea, just sort of give us your sort of basic background um, and your story in tea.
1: Cool. Um, well, I'm certainly not a tea expert. That's for sure. I know a lot more about fermented tea than the tea itself, but. Um, for me, tea was always something that was consumed in my household. My mom's from Australia. She has Welsh family. She always had some form of a builder's tea growing up. So that was, you know, I was making cups of tea for my mom from a really young age. Um, and that was sort of always part of my life. And, and I've always enjoyed just sort of your standard builder's cup or something like that. And I didn't really know much about specialty tea. Um, you know, the, probably the furthest I got... You know, it was when I was in high school, my dad brought home some like prepackaged matcha from uh, Costco or something like that. And it was this exotic, exotic thing in the house. Um, But kombucha was actually my first foray into tea. Um, And when I started drinking kombucha, I didn't even realize it was made from tea initially. Um, The first time I had it. Uh, was in I was studying in San Diego. I'm from Los Angeles, but I went to college in San Diego. And a friend of mine had given me a, a bottle of kombucha after yoga class, and uh, she said it was really good for you and it tasted really good. So I had that for the first time, and I really didn't like it. <laughs> I was like, "It tastes like vinegar. How can you drink a whole bottle of this?" Um, and I started seeing it pop up in more and more places, and I learned a bit about it, and learned that it was made from tea, and um, and then learned it was from originally most likely brewed in ancient China, maybe 2000 years ago. So, but I fell in love with kombucha and um, it wasn't actually until we started a commercial kombucha business in 2015 that I really started looking into teas and looking into sourcing our teas and learning which flavor profiles worked really well for kombucha when fermented. And um, and we eventually settled on a blend of, uh, of a Sencha green tea originally, which is now gunpowder and a tea guanyin oolong. Um, and yeah, and then I started drinking, you know, I've been introduced to so many different tea buyers and people in the world of tea that I actually started drinking tea. Um, and I've just met a lot of people in that world ever since, um, and, and you as well. And now I'm a daily tea drinker, primarily matcha actually is, is what I choose to drink every morning. But yeah, that's sort of, uh, my experience in tea. I mean, I don't know too much about it. And, and you actually are, um, one of the first people to introduce me to a tea ceremony. Um, the first person was actually my friend Adam Yasmin, um, and uh, and he works with uh, White Two Tea. I'm not sure if you've heard of them, and he introduced me to their yeah pu'er, um, which blew my mind. And then I had a um, a tea ceremony with you, and we do most times we meet up. But yeah, that just expanded my understanding of tea and 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 its origins and how it can be applied and how it sort of ties into this expansion of consciousness and deep discussions and connection and. So yeah, I mean that's so far been my experience with tea.
0: Well, I mean, uh, yeah, I think you're underselling it. From having discussions with you, you 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 do, you do have a very uh, tuned in palate. Certainly, you can certainly taste the 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 subtleties and nuances of tea and you have great descriptors as well. I've got to get you onto a video at one point and we got to do some tea tasting together, but now is not that time. Um, yeah. And so you still drinking, obviously you're drinking But Are you drinking pu'er
1: still? Yes. Yeah. I still have some left, um, that you gave me, um, the last time we saw each other. So I have a little, um, uh, I guess a like little guy set, is that how you pronounce it? Um, yeah. And, uh, and I drink, you know, I do pu'er little ceremonies, um, me and Laura every now and then. But um, yeah, it's not a daily thing. It's not, uh, I wouldn't even say it's regular, but when I'm feeling in the mood um, and I want to sit down and go inward a little bit, it's a really beautiful way to spend the day or spend a couple hours. Um, but with regards to tasting and um, I, I have always had, since I was young, like an abnormally strong sense of smell, like really, really strong to the point where... I I do often get a little bit nauseous if there's like artificial smells around, like if you're in like a you know a cab or or something and someone's got those air fresheners hanging, it makes me really sick. And I've always, I don't know, like I I I'm led by my nose in a lot of ways, and that actually I think ties into flavor as well. So when we have done that in the past, I really do pick up some some things, but I I don't have a wide enough vocabulary for what I'm experiencing to actually. Um, sort of fully make sense of what's happening.
0: Yeah, it's very difficult to build that vocabulary up because, I mean, first of all, it's, it's all related to, to memory. So everyone's um, reaction to a particular flavor or aromatic is going to be slightly different depending on all of their previous past experiences. So there's nothing absolute there. Um, and every time you're taking in aroma, your, your brain is combining them into objects uh, flavor objects and to try to disassemble them back to their original parts is a real challenge. It's a, it's a fascinating one. Did you know, I read recently that they think that aroma and aromatics and the process of perceiving smell is actually a quantum process.
1: Whoa, no way. Tell me more about yeah, that. Yeah,
0: it's actually one of those times where they think that, because th- there's a, a lot of people say that Whilst the, the world of quantum and all of the bizarre activity that happens on a quantum level is incredible and bizarre and fantastic, it doesn't really apply to the macro world. In other words, as soon as you start to reach a certain size, you, uh, you're collapsing the wave function um, just simply by the size of the, of the particles. But that uh, more and more we're starting to see how the quantum weirdness basically affects the macro world and smell is potentially obviously this is all in review but potentially one of them the idea think the the thinking behind it is that we as human beings are able to pick up i don't know i can't remember but many thousands of different t- different smells right mm-hmm. and obviously you know if you look at other animals they they have a vastly higher number of smells that they can uh, pick up and discern and isolate and yet the area in the nose which is responsible for receiving and reacting to aromatic volatiles it seems to to the scientists that you can't use a simple sort of uh, key and lock explanation for it in other words this mm-hmm. uh, aroma compound has this shape and then it fits into a particular receptor of exactly that shape and therefore it triggers your brain to go oh it's that smell so basically you're saying there aren't enough Keyholes essentially um, to account for all the number of different smells that we can we can discern, and so there is thinking that there are quantum vibrations that happen with with molecules, and this is commonly used um, to isolate and understand the makeup of certain things. So it's not this is not anything that's that's unknown, but that our brain or sorry that our nose has the ability to essentially. Uh, determine the the vibrations the quantum vibrations of particular aromatic volatiles and so it's using a combination of shapes so a crude shape yeah that fits in with a variety of different aromatic compounds and then looking at the actual uh, vibrations that are coming um on a on a on a quantum level and that is triggering us to discern what smell it actually is so it seems that the act of smelling is actually a quantum process.
1: Wow, that's unbelievable. Can you send me the wherever this is? I'd love to read this.
0: Yeah, it's there's a few papers. I think there's a few papers that have been written in a, in a couple of YouTube videos. I'll, I'll definitely uh, send you some stuff.
1: You know, just going back real quick to smell and taste. I mean, in your videos and, and sitting with you in person, drinking tea with you, I mean, you you have such a not only wide vocabulary for, for explaining what you're experiencing, but also I'm curious about your internal space, what you experience when you're tasting something or smelling something. What is that experience like for you? Is it like, is it a visual experience An emotional experience? What, what's the, like the essence of that?
0: I find that the best way to come up with tasting notes is to not try.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Um,
0: You know, it's that whole thing of, of, Allowing the processes to happen and sort of uh, freeing yourself from the mental process of I need to come up with a flavor, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: you know, because Mm -hmm. that process actually sort of clouds and causes interference in the actual process of tasting. I think, Mm -hmm. you know, the fact is that our brain, 90% of the tasting experience is done subconsciously. Right. So Mm -hmm. the act of tasting, the act of remembering, the act of, first of all, deciding whether or not a a taste is dangerous Mm -hmm. or could be something which is nutritious. That's something that's happening way before we start to, our, our conscious mind starts to get involved. Mm-hmm. it's going past the uh, the the amygdala it's going past all the different brain centers to sort of to des- to decide whether or not something is good or bad and access our memories to try to to associate it with a memory or associate it with another food or another experience that we've had and all of that is happening in a split second without our conscious thought mm-hmm. and the act of tasting i think has to involve a celebration and a release sort of allowing that process to happen without trying to interfere with it too much with with thought processes. So my act of tasting, I think, is to try not to think and allow the memories to just come. And that's why a lot of the time they may be, be slightly obscure tasting notes because of the fact that it's just sort of memories that sort of pop out of nowhere without too much without too much thinking about whether or not that's a right or wrong thing to say.
1: Mm, That's a beautiful description of it. I mean, uh, and also evidenced by the names of your teas and the in-depth kind of tasting notes and experience and bodily sensations that you that you have from tea. Um, I mean, I've never been exposed to anybody discussing tea in that way before and actually looking at your website and hearing hearing you speak about tea and experiencing tea with you it is like, uh, in a way, like it's, um, it can be psychedelic, it can be um, like meditative, it can be this nostalgic journey, it can be so many different things. And I've I'd never really realized that tea could take you those places until I was introduced to it um, at Mayleaf in this specific way. So I think that's a really beautiful way of approaching it.
0: I think what tea has taught me, and I think teaches a lot of people through their journey is that it's the relinquishing of control that brings positivity, right? Mm-hmm. It's the relinquishing of the, the fallacy of sort of absoluteness that, um, brings creativity. Uh, it brings movement. It somehow things work out when you just let them go. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the tasting of tea, because of its subtlety, you know, it doesn't come. The taste doesn't does, doesn't like hit you around the face like eating like I don't know a dry aged burger. Do you know what I mean? Or yeah. or even like certain like coffee. You know, it's very very sort of yes, it's nuanced, but it's right there in your face, right? The taste. Whereas tea is something that you need to sort of allow space for, for, for you to come to those tasting notes. And I think that that tea has really taught me the concept of Wu Wei, the concept of do less to achieve more, um, is definitely, uh, uh, definitely being something that's been guided by tea. Mm. And I think that that, that's something that just leads to generally a happier existence.
1: I agree. Yeah, for sure.
0: So let's talk about your, um, I mean, obviously you've been involved in kombucha, you've been, um, experiencing TNT tea tea ceremony, but your journey in general, um, from speaking to you is definitely, uh, seems to me that you are, first and foremost experiencing life as a seeker right you're 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 seeking out experiences and you're seeking out you know uh truth in all its multifaceted glory right so um let's talk a little bit about your journey there and and your your way and how that may have influenced your your approach to your to your business with uh jar wow
1: that's um yeah it's funny um I, before you said seeker, I was actually thinking you might say that because I guess in a way, we're all seeking something. But um, there's a particular thing that I think I started looking for from from a young age. And I think it, it essentially nowadays I realize it's truth. You know, truth about myself, truth about um, life, truth about what it means to be a human. Um, yeah, I mean, my journey in terms of that side of things... I guess I can remember, um, I, picked, I was, it was in England, um, visiting family, my family's from Wales, and we were somewhere in some old bookshop, and I was probably five or six, and I picked a book off the shelf that was about meditation. And I just opened it up to a random page. And I remember reading that this guy was talking about how he was so deep in meditation that he could hear the ashes from his incense stick falling onto the table. And I was like, whoa, I was like, that's insane. Like, can you really do that? And so there was like this spark that was this thing that was sort of set off in my mind where I was thinking, maybe like magic does exist. Maybe there's this new this this other dimension to, you know, reality that we're not aware of. And it sort of opened something up for me. And from that point on I was interested in, in meditation, in yoga, in Eastern philosophies and eventually in psychedelics and plant medicine and And so that's always been a part of my journey, but at the core of it has also always been connecting with myself through those different ways, but also connecting with other people and understanding what it means to be human. Because at the end of the day, sort of the philosophy I'm living by now is, you know, regardless of what we believe, whether we're spiritual or religious or agnostic or atheist, like um, we are on this earth, we are in this, you know, realm right now and we are human beings we are in this life and there's something to be learned from the human experience so that's sort of what it's what it's like drawn me to over the years and um, kombucha just happened to be something that um, I fell in love with because of its uh, sort of low sugar um, quote-unquote health giving properties initially and its complexity of flavor and um, I didn't ever think I'd start a kombucha business and, and my best friends that I started, Jar with, um, we're also obsessed with kombucha, and we just came up with this idea and thought it would be really fun to start a brand together. And they're people that I had deeply connected with over the years and had lived with in, in London when I first moved here um, in 2011. Um, and it was, yeah, it was through living in, in, in a warehouse space in Hackney Wick and having this sense of freedom and all these big parties. And, you know, if you've been to any, uh, any warehouse parties, you might know what I mean, but this was a bit of a magical environment and it's where I met my partner, Laura. And a lot of big things happened for me as a result of living communally in this open, loving space of connection. And, um, and jar was one of the things that came out of it. So it was through that seeking through that sense of connection and, um, and I guess looking to go a little bit deeper in terms of how we can live and what it means to you know, be human that, um, that a lot of things in my life have, have, you know, come to me, I guess you could say.
0: So talk me through, talk me through the, uh, how did you arrive in London?
1: So I was, uh, my, my grandfather was Welsh. So I always had the option of getting an ancestry visa. And when I graduated from college, um, in 2000, what year was that? 2010, um, I moved to Australia for a year and, uh, wasn't ready to go back to the states after a year, so I had some friends living in East London in Hackney Wick, and I visited them once before in 2008. And I, they were living in an old shoe factory, and they'd opened a cafe called the Counter Cafe, which was um, oh, supposed yeah. to represent the counterculture um, of Hackney Wick. And when I visited them, it literally blew my mind. Like I think I've told you this before, but. Hackney Wick, when I first visited uh, Stratford, first of all, didn't exist. That was all marshland. And Hackney Wick was this like, never, never land in a way, like a um, completely rundown version. But <laughs> it was, um, it was just magical. Like people living in these disused warehouse spaces, like playing music together. Some people worked, some people didn't. Most people were artistic. Um, almost everybody was creative. And they had these huge communal dinners, they had these huge communal parties. And there was this sense of like openness and connection that was more akin to a family than, you know, living with friends. And I'd never quite experienced anything like it. So I, I had that so experience. Which year was this? So that was 2008. And then, um, I was, I had been studying abroad in, in France. And then I, I came to London to visit some friends who were living there at the time. And then, Sort of over the years, um, I just, it kept coming up in my mind. And then after Australia, I was like, you know what? Like, I might as well take advantage of this ancestry visa and, and try out London for a bit. And that's what I did. And, and then got stuck in Hackney Wick, um, for a couple of years. But my story is sort of all over the place. I ended up leaving for two years to go traveling. And, and it wasn't until 2015 that I ended up coming back to London with the, with the goal of starting a kombucha brewery. It's sort of a story that goes all over the place, but.
0: Sure. I mean, I I, obviously being a Londoner and being, uh, I, I I lived in the States as you know, for a bit, but then came back here and that time. So you're talking about sort of between the 2000 and sort of 2012. Yeah. That area, East London, that squat culture there. Wow. That, that that was very, very formative for a lot of people, Mm -hmm. I think yeah you know and and you saw this sort of it was an interesting time because it was sort of i don't know which generation is this generation x i don't know uh, I, i'm losing track of all the of all the so but it, it felt like that there was a recognition that the that the sort of traditional concept of how you would live your life and the expectation of, say, owning a home and all of those things, that all of that had been taken away because of the fact that, you know, we had reached sort of saturation point. And all of these squats started popping up with people having parties and and all these creative people getting together. And it was it was really interesting because everyone was sort of diving into trying to explore, I guess, the new way of living or a different way of living or how you can uh, associate values to different things. And uh, it's really interesting to see all the businesses that popped out of it and that JAR is one of them because it, it sort of makes sense to me because all of the, the 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 sort of, I would say, the endeavors that have come out of those kinds of environments tend to have at their core a sort of a very different approach to to what, the concept of business and the concept of success compared to, I would say more conventional business approaches. And I I don't know uh, as a West coaster as well, if you see any similarities between that and some of the West coast movements that have been uh, happening over the decades.
1: Yeah. I I mean, I guess in a way, although like, I guess the main thing that happened, it it was the, the shift in consciousness when I came to London, when I, well, first of all, when I actually moved to London, like, uh, I had been to Burning Man the week before. So I went from <laughs> okay. Burning Man for the very first time to moving to Hackney Wick, like officially. And it was just like this perfect transition from like mind expansion of like, this is how people can live together in an I- ideal society for a week and then straight to Hackney Wick, which really wasn't very different. It was just a long form version of Burning <laughs> Man in a lot of ways. Um, but starting a business in Hackney Wick, I feel like there was. Th- there was no expectation to be anything. We could be whoever we wanted. That's actually the thing. I think the essence of what attracted me so much to it is that you could be whoever you wanted. You could create your own reality. You didn't have to conform to societal norms and, you know, work that finance job. You could work in a cafe. I mean, it's sort of like the Portland mentality, parts of, parts of, um, parts of Oregon where you can, you know, to this day still work as a Um, as a barista or um, as a bartender and live an amazing life. And you don't have to become something, you know, because society is telling you to. And um, Crate Brewery, um, which is my my best friend's uh, business, and I started JAR with them as a separate business. But that was born out of just creating a place for people in the area to drink um, and hang out and socialize. And the whole place was built um, from all the local people. And, you know, it was... I guess this sense of um, we're not going to conform to anything. We're going to create our own way. We're going to create our own life. Um, And that's sort of how JAR was born. But I think that is happening to a certain extent in parts of California um, and probably Oregon and the West Coast in general, the further up north you go. I guess it's sort of um, a bohemian perspective, um, being able to make your own reality.
0: Yeah, it is. And I, I think it can easily be sort of pigeonholed, You know, as in like, oh, okay, this is sort of, yeah, the bohemian way or, Mm -hmm. you know, throughout history. Well, not throughout history, but I guess in modern history, there have been a few movements like that. um, And people can sort of, yeah, pigeonhole it and and sort of caricature it. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, it seems to me that it's something that is part of the human struggle all the time is to have this dialogue of what does it mean to be successful yeah. what does it mean you know challenging the assumption of of what does value mean or what does success mean or
1: mm-hmm.
0: or you know how are you judging yourself and one of the things that i don't know how you feel about it but one of the things i've noticed which is a bit sad in my point of view is that it seems like that movement uh in East London, well, East London has changed radically, as you know. But it also seems that the sort of essence of of just being and not comparing uh, too much, and and not sort of being part of the rat race, has been it's been more difficult to follow with the advent of social media,
1: with oh, yeah, the advent sure. of
0: you know this continuous comparison that is going on. So even if you're not working that finance job, you're still sort of in a rat race of some sorts. Do you know what I mean?
1: For sure. Yeah i I have a mixed relationship with social media. I think it's um it's a tool that can be wielded in a multitude of ways, but ultimately I, I struggle with it because at the end of the day it, it, I'm constantly either consciously or subconsciously comparing myself to other people, other businesses, um other kombucha businesses. You know, I mean it's 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 a difficult thing to look at and compare yourself to and, um, and believe that that's reality. And actually when I first moved to Hackney, I don't even think I had an Instagram or uh, I don't even know if that didn't exist. Like, what is this doing to, to our brains? What is it doing to, you know, children's brains who are exposed to this now from the moment they can speak, you know, it's a scary thing in a lot of ways, actually. And I don't think we know the full you know, scope of the impact it's going to have on our, on our consciousness.
0: This is the biggest guinea pig experiment uh, that, and in such a souped up, supercharged, turbocharged way, because it's just taken over everything. Mm-hmm. But I, I have to say that from my assessment, yes, there are lots of positives that can come out of social, and we all try to use social f- to bring about those positives. But the the constant act of comparison and the constant desire for dopamine reward through this sort of addictive nature mm-hmm. which is you know well documented and being used by by businesses from the Las Vegas casinos uh, and and beyond mm-hmm. but the fact that this is this addictive dopamine reward system is in at your reach 24 hours a day yeah is one of the most i think terrifying things because it's just creating an addictive Environment where you are continuously making comparisons, and the the act of comparison inevitably always, it, you know, everyone focuses on where they're failing rather than where they're succeeding. You exactly. know, everyone focuses on the negative rather than the positive. Uh, it's it's it seems to me that everyone is comparing themselves to other people, um, even if they know that the other person's account or the other business's account is you know a glorified mirage of you know what it actually is you know Mm -hmm. it's 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 we all know that this is that this is bullshit but for some (laughs) reason we still you know go along with it it's amazing
1: it's it's easy to believe that it's real um you know i mean and in a lot of ways i think the real issue is that it creates a buffer between true human connection you know think about how how infrequently i mean i'm not sure if this is something that that you encounter but like I'll just text people now. I rarely speak to someone on the phone. And if I do, it's, um, you know, it's my mom or my grandmother, or, you know, it's like a really close friend. I like, I just text and that removes the the connection that removes the, I don't know, because for me, you know, human connection and, um, and really deeply bonding with other people is, is at the core of like my belief system about why we're here and what our purpose is. And, and I fall victim to that every day, creating that buffer between me and other people. And just, it's easier that way. And then it's, it's in a way, you're more connected to people than ever, but you're almost more isolated than ever, or people are lonelier than ever, because they're not really getting that deep connection that they truly desire. I
0: guess you can just map it back as technology has always had this double-edged sword, right? So Mm -hmm. technology, whatever it might be, I guess, from the advent of the wheel onwards, right? It creates opportunity, but it also creates a uh, disharmony or it can lead to a disharmony if it's not used properly, right? It's the same as everything. It's the same as drugs, I mean, you know, Mm -hmm. as well. you you, You know, the difference between somebody who's abusing and using, the difference between plant-based medicine and you know and narcotics is you know it's 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 all about how it's being used yeah so that's always been the case through the through the advent of new technology the problem is that this seems to me to be slightly different because first of all it's global Mm -hmm. Um, it's in the hands of of all, you know a, a huge proportion of the world I think obviously there's clearly some people that don't have smartphones out there but there aren't that many mm-hmm. um, certainly a large proportion of the world it's instant uh, it, it's sort of non centralized in terms of its manipulation it sort of has a life of its of its own mm-hmm. um, and it's based upon the most primal reward system that has you know, that we have developed and it's sort of hacked into that reward system so that you're constantly searching for that. How many likes have I had or, you know, Mm -hmm. how many new followers do I have or, you know, whatever, did someone write a funny comment or did, did, did I get enough likes on my comment? You know, this sort of reward structure, which is essentially, I would say, potentially the foundation of most suffering. Right. Mm-hmm. Is that need? Yeah. Is that sort of yeah. desire for fulfillment in that way leads you to that need leads to suffering?
1: Yeah. Comparison. It's comparison. You
0: know? It leads to. Yeah, exactly. It leads to comparison. Um, it leads to um, a, a continuous beating yourself up if you did not achieve the results that you are looking for and most oftentimes even if you did manage to achieve the results the 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 way that we are programmed is that our celebration of that is so short-lived mm-hmm. you know yes we managed to achieve an aim on something Well, it's not like we sit and feel good for for you know for a few days about it you know we basically go okay great that was good i'll celebrate for like maybe a minute and then you're on to the next thing right because social is constant move is constantly moving, you know, and so you know, that whole rat race of of reward and comparison is exactly what I think, you know, ancient philosophies have always been warning against. You know, relinquish yourself from those desires, from those needs, because that is the route to to suffering.
1: And our brains aren't hardwired for this. You know, the human brain is is actually Pretty similar to how it was, God, I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of years ago, um, but the human brain is, has not developed as quickly as technology is developing. And it's, it's, we don't know what this is doing to us, you know? um, as you know, as we're recording something that will be posted on our digital platforms, we're talking about this. And
0: yeah. And you know, I, it's worth me saying, obviously I use social all the time. And I think that there's a lot of potential for social to do great things. I'm not uh, branding it as just as evil. I'm just saying that, uh, like you're saying that it needs to be taken with extreme caution mm-hmm. right uh, you know I, I was yesterday you know sometimes uh, all, all phones have that focus mode where you can switch off apps and you know you can you can basically you know go into me time yeah and it is a remarkable feeling when you push that button and all of those apps go gray <laughs> and everything <laughs> sort of disappears it's amazing because it's it's so interesting because y- You're in control at all times, right? You can switch it on or off. Mm. Um, But the act of doing it, the intention of doing it, the power of that intention, it just immediately brings calm.
1: Or it can also bring anxiety depending on the type of person you are and what's underneath the surface, I guess.
0: well, I think then that's something that you need to sort of work through. If it causes you anxiety, which you know certainly um, it used to cause me a lot of anxiety, but if it causes you anxiety then then I think that that's a, a perfect marker that you need
1: to do it. for sure, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know you've talked
0: about your your journey a little bit in terms of your experiences and you touched upon your experiences with, uh, plant-based psychedelics, um, and sort of your seeking out of truth. Uh, how, uh, talk us through a little bit about that journey and how that sort of relates to potentially the ideas that we're talking about in terms of, you know, the, the, the suffering that stems from desires.
1: Mm. Well, I, I mean, first of all, before I talk about any of this, I do want to say that, um, I don't, I I actually rarely recommend um, plant medicines for anybody. Uh, Maybe when I first started taking them and and working with them, I I was a bit diehard. But nowadays, I realize that they need to be approached with serious caution and understanding and reverence. Um, Sort of akin to the work, if anyone's interested in this topic, um, a great place to check out is MAPS.org, which is the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. And that's in, in California. And They're doing um, sort of government approved um, studies on how these things can help people, people with PTSD and depression and addiction, late stage cancer diagnosis, all types of stuff. So um, also, I would recommend people check out How to Change Your Mind, the book by Michael Pollan. It's fascinating. It goes into the history of all this and all the research that's being done. But my sort of um, foray into this world, uh, if you will, was... Um, was first in high school, you know, taking mushrooms and having like a really profound experience, like connecting with a deeper part of myself that I always knew was there, but never came into contact with. And I just knew there was something special about that place. And I knew it could be useful if used in the right way. Um, But it wasn't until years later, when I read a book called Breaking Open the Head by a guy named Daniel Pinchbeck, um, that uh, it sort of Talked about this this thing called ayahuasca, which um, is native to the Amazon basin and has been used for thousands of years um, by different tribes um, for various purposes. Um, and I was fascinated by it. This guy went into the jungle and and worked with a Amazonian tribe and and drank this this tea and had this incredible experience um, that opened him up in like unimaginable ways and. I just had this emotional response to it. When I read it, it was very strange. Like I just started crying. (laughs) It was really weird. And, um, and I was like, Whoa, what was that? And I was, I was probably 18 or 19 at the time. And, um, and I just sort of knew that that was sort of a journey that I needed to go on. There was something there. There was this element of seeking truth and seeking the, the true nature of who we are that I was really interested in. So, um, So actually, for my graduation gift um, from university, my parents agreed to send me to Peru (laughs) to an ayahuasca retreat center. Um, And it was there that I had my first ceremonies and experiences with it. And, um, you know, and over the years, I've I've worked with uh, many different sort of healers, I guess you could call them or shamans. Um, And it's really difficult to say because it's such a such a personal experience, but In essence, what that space showed me was pure truth about myself, um, about who I am, about what has made me the person I am, the way my brain functions based on experiences I had in childhood. Um, And it just pieced everything together in a way that allowed me to get a real deep overview of my unconscious mind and the way that I was structured. And in that way, it was coming into contact with who I truly was, who I sort of see as myself as a child, like, you know, in our, in our younger years, we're so, I guess you could say pure in a lot of ways. We're not, we haven't been, um, manipulated by the world around us. We haven't, um, we haven't experienced life yet. So we're sort of in this state of openness and curiosity and love. And like, it's about sort of going back to that. It's sort of, it's sort of about wading through all the stuff in between who you were as a child to who you are now and understanding, reconnecting with that inner child, which is for me, what it was all about. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not really sure uh, exactly what to go into. But apart from the fact that those experiences eventually led me to a regular practice of meditation, um, and breath work, which I, which I practice every day. And uh, it's called pranayama. And you can reach similar states, but it's through your own body. And what I've realized is those, those experiences, they're all wonderful for bringing to you um, an awareness of of where you can go and, and what you can reach. But ultimately, the work needs to be done here in this realm in this reality with your own mind and your own body. That's like, that's the best way to do it. So it's funny that using plant medicines eventually brought me back just to working with all of this myself without anything. Um, and that's been massive for me Yeah, during lockdown. It's
0: sort of like, uh, information, isn't it? It's sort of, if you are given some information, then you don't need to be continuously being told that bit of information. You know what mm. I mean? It's like, yeah. you've got the information now you've, 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 you've been, uh, privileged to get some of this, um, this information of what it means to have this human conscious experience that you can then apply to and allow to inform, you know, your day-to-day life. And then the work really has to happen outside of those experiences. You know, Mm -hmm. um, you use it for a particular purpose, but once you've received that purpose or you've gained the benefits of that purpose then you've just got to apply it to your life
1: Mm, for sure it's it's sort of about giving you a context for understanding or showing you something that um you can then go back to it's a reference point i guess you could say yeah um but also at the same time like (laughs) these things like they're not as easy as just taking something and having some experience. Like you have to come along for the ride. You have to, you have to be open to the experience and you have to let go, which is essentially what you're doing. And, um, you know, there was this, I think I've talked to you about this before, but I I don't remember who it was, but there was an Indian guru in the 1970s. And one of his followers asked him publicly, what do you think about LSD? And he said, I see LSD as you're entering God's house, but you're coming in through the back door uninvited, and it and it was like you know you're seeing you you might get to see all the shiny things you might get to have these crazy profound deep experiences, but ultimately you you're back in your body and you're back in this life, and that's you know like I mentioned earlier for me like I'm here to be human I'm here to be who I am in this space and. And sort of cultivating that awareness um, with that in mind, I think is, um, is really important because it can, you can get, you know, these things can be used to help with addiction and all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, you can be addicted to the experience of, um, of going to those places, so you can get you know addicted to anything. But
0: well, you can get addicted yet yeah, you can get addicted to the experience rather than the the rather than uh, just taking the value of it and applying it. You know that there's the, there's a certain value in having these altered states, um, and uh, but but the the experience itself isn't what is the value. It's what you can take back from it. That's that's valuable. And if you're just addicted to, to being in that altered state, then that's uh, mm-hmm. then that's not necessarily helpful in any way. And it's you, interesting you are talking about the letting go. But I think that that's one of the biggest lessons that that these kinds of experiences teaches you is that how hard that is to do, how to somehow divorce yourself or separate yourself from your ego and recognize the fallacies and the the constructions that are happening that you have created or that the world has somehow created in you. And the fear that people have in, in truly letting that go mm. is one of the most valuable lessons I think. And it's a painful lesson for a lot of people, you know, as yeah. you're going through that kind of um, experience because it feels like a death.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I've had that experience many times. Uh, and it's not easy, you know, letting go. And I still like have trouble letting go in in just normal life. I mean, I think um, the, the space that I go into now during meditation or breath work, or maybe a deep yoga session is, I get into a place where I'm able to observe um, my thoughts, my feelings, my emotions. What's interesting to me is that there's almost two minds that are in our mind at any time. There's the one thinking, the one feeling, and then the one observing the thinking and the feeling. And it's this crazy concept, um, which, you know, I mean, can be explained in a multitude of ways. But my feeling is that there is an observer. There is there is a, an, an essence of consciousness that observes the ego at play. And if you can become that observer or just sit from that space like you're on a mountaintop and you're watching you know the world unfold like in the valley below in a way you're able to separate yourself from the anxiety and the, or the loneliness or the sadness or the fear or the anger whatever the difficult emotions are and you're able to just perceive them as not you as as your ego as something separate from you and and remember that those are going to pass and in a lot of ways you know, my my first couple tea ceremonies have been very similar to that. They sort of launch me into that space, and I just get into the space of observation, which is why I'm fascinated with the with tea and and the ceremonies associated with it.
0: Well, I think that what tea does certainly is is built into the the narrative or the language. I would say it's even further than that. I would say the symbolism in tea is is all about an acceptance of impermanence and that acceptance of him, because let's face it, the ego likes to think it's that it, that it's immortal. You know, it has a yeah. sort of uh, it, and it's scared of dying. Right. Yeah. So, sure. um, and I think that, I think that the tea ceremony, you can call it, or at least, you know, it doesn't even have to be a ceremony. The whole ritual of, Making tea, preparing tea, and knowing about the way that tea comes to you in terms of the different batches, you know, and the the, the multitude of variations in it, the fact that it's so varied and so diverse and has so many different uh, factors, and, and the fact that you can never drink the same tea twice, mm-hmm. has this um, uh, requirement of acceptance and celebration of impermanence. So I think that's one thing that tea certainly does, um, and I I do think that the act of observation is one of the most powerful things you can do. And and a lot of people talk about it, right? You know, it's one of the key things that you talk about in terms of meditation is to try to just uh, non-judgmentally observe everything. But it is such a powerful practice. I mean, it's, it's a potent practice because it does, as you say, sort of somehow bring you to a truer or higher self. It somehow makes you feel this sense of calm that comes from true recognition that nothing really matters in your egoic
1: life totally yeah which is a it's a very strange realization to have and also quite difficult to do and i struggle with it every single day um even with a daily practice um you know also something that's come up during these experiences with plant medicines and also very much so in meditation and breath work is the idea that when discomfort arises or difficult feelings or memories or thoughts or emotions come up, instead of running away from them, you can, you can actually go into them, not go into the story, but go into the feeling of them. Because all of these emotions and experiences, they're stored like somatically like where they're stored in our bodies. And we, we hold on to all of these things. And if we can figure out where they are, breathe into that space, welcome it, we can very quickly start to move through difficult aspects of ourselves. And um, that's sort of something that I'm really working with at the moment. And it's something that the framework was set sort of with plant medicines for me.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that what you're also talking about is the, um, oh. we're starting to touch upon the the, the subject of time because One of the great things about certain practices, be the meditation or potentially drinking tea, is finding the present has a remarkable way of relinquishing unpleasant experiences or or reducing unpleasant experiences. Because for the vast majority of unpleasant experiences, they are projections of the of into the future or of the past right they're mm-hmm. remembering painful memories or their anxiety or reacting to things that are not happening mm-hmm. um i can't remember who said it but um uh sasha one of my friends who was on a previous podcast uh, quoted it to me saying a lot of things happen a lot of i've had a lot of terrible experiences in my life most of them never happened <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> that's uh, beautiful and, and i and I think that, that that's uh, that's pretty apt in that you know the suffer the suffering that most people go through or the the majority of the suffering that happens in your life is happening as a result of manifestations of your thought that relate to things that you think are going to happen in the future or you're worried are going to happen or things that uh, that have happened in the past. But when you you think about the absolute present, for the I would say nearly absolute so 99.9 percent of the time you are fine <laughs> you know yeah um everything is absolutely fine right here right now everything is fine so yeah i think that that's that's a big part of of finding uh, i guess you know the expression of mindfulness is is a very hip expression but that idea of of being very present of non-judgmentally observing and being Um, very uh, focusing your mind on every single activity, right? The Stoics said it as well. It's like, imagine that every act that you are, every single act is the last act that you are going to do. And you're going to die in a second.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah,
0: That's a very sort of, it sounds very extreme, but it's actually very liberating. It's this idea of like, just focus on absolutely everything you are doing right now. Mm -hmm. That's the way to lead a happier life. And in many ways, that's what, I was trying to refer to when I was talking about the act of letting go um, and the act of letting go, helping to achieve more positive things and and in in tasting or in business or whatever. Mm. It's this idea of just focus on what you're doing right now and not think too much about the ramifications of those actions or worry about, you know, trying to create a narrative of them. Instead focus solely on two things intention and expression. That's mm-hmm. it. If you focus on simply those two things, what is your intention, how are you gonna express it? Because when you think about it, that's the only thing that you have that you have control over. Yeah. You don't have any control over anything else. You you have control over what your intent is and how you choose to express it. Uh, everything else is out of your control.
1: Now I guess a part of that, and we've sort of riffed on this before, is where does morality come into play with regards to that? I mean, like um, through some of my experiences, a big theme has been integrity, that, that element, the element of, of, um, well, first of all, doing what you say you're going to do, but also coming at stuff with a sense of compassion, of awareness, of kindness, of empathy, of love. We've, we've talked about morality before, and there's such like a scale now. Now what's your belief system on morality again? I mean, it's like, that there's this, there's this scale of us as humans. Is it a human construct? How does it play out? What is the actual nature of, you know, what it means to be human? What's, what's the true way of being, you know?
0: Well, it's, it's an interesting subject and one that I've battled with a lot, as you know. Um, and my sort of present conclusion, and subject to change as always, <laughs> but my present conclusion is that it is, it is a human construct. I do think that you've got to separate the concept of morality from goodness. So a sharp knife is a good knife because it's sharp and it can cut.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. So, you know, instead, what I think you need to do is judge things on what their intrinsic fundamental purposes. And if they do that well, then they are good. Mm-hmm. right but everything outside of that you know the concepts of good and evil um, and morality I think is a, a construct i don't think it's it's i don't think it's an unhelpful construct to some degree I think that it can help to sort of shape society and help you know society to develop but I do think intrinsically it is a construct i don't think that we should be focused on whether or not we are good or bad i think that we should just focus on function what is our function and i would say that your function is to be
1: yeah i mean that's it
0: so in other words you you exist that is your function you are a human being you're not a human doing you're not a human will be doing you know you are a human being all life's function is to be so, as long as you are being, you are good, yeah, right, because you 're just like that knife you're you're you have a you have achieved your function, and that 's why all value judgments outside of that are uh, sort of a, a a meaningless construct, and certainly something that you shouldn 't get yourself too wrapped up in, right, so concept of bank balance concept of you know whether or not you've achieved success that might mean lots of different things well it does that's the problem with it is it means lots of different things all the time so it means that you need to be judged on your looks on your personality on your humor on your ability to be a good partner on your ability to earn money on your ability to whatever whatever mm. you are choosing right now to compare yourself with other people you know, to discern or to define whether or not you have value is a falsity. It's like trying to say, you know, that money has value. Well, money intrinsically doesn't have value. That piece of paper doesn't have value. It's a construct. It's a Mm. fiction Mm -hmm. we've created that we accept that if you, give this piece of paper to someone else or now you transfer these figures to somebody else that you can therefore get something. It's a, it's a religion of sorts, right? We, we accept it as a narrative, but it's ultimately fake. Mm. Yeah. And that's how I feel about value and morality. I think that ultimately it's fake. And I think that we can achieve much more what most people would put under the consensus as good, Mm. So we talked about compassion and, and you know, love and all of those things. I would suggest to you that we can achieve all of that by trying less and by just being. If we focus on what our true function is, is being, then all of the... I'm very sort of a positivist in this sense. I do believe that just by being, we have the right intent. And I think that that it's the... It's the interference of that pure function that causes evil.
1: Yeah. Wow. That's a really beautiful way to put it. I, um, I agree with you. I think morality in a way is ingrained our species from, from the very nature that we lived in these hunter gatherer tribes. And it made more sense to support each other than to kill each other, you know, essentially. So it, it makes sense that in our DNA, we want to be socially responsible and connected and, and experience love so that we have these bonds that will essentially keep us alive. Um, I think I mentioned this to you before. Maybe I did the last time we saw each other, but I read this book called Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Have you read that? Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, fascinating because the the concept that they talk about or the, the, the main character talks about the idea of quality is very much along these lines. The idea that sort of this subdivision or this binary way of looking at um, quality or morality or goodness, oh, not goodness, I guess more morality, like what's right and wrong, what's good and bad, is not really objective experience. Like it's, it, those aren't good enough to encompass the, entire, the entirety of the human experience.
0: Yeah, No, absolutely. I think that people get way too caught up in it. Like, for example, like, uh, I'm a new parent, right? Mm. Um, And there's a big difference between saying, I want to be a good father from a non-egoic place just as as an intent, right? I want to be a good father, right? I want to do that for my daughter. I don't want to do it because it makes me feel valuable. Right. And I think there's a big difference there. I think when you start to when you start to conflate your intention with making your ego feel more valuable, that's where real problem that's where problems develop. For sure. Yeah. At the end of the day, if I succeed or fail, from my point of view, it doesn't matter. Mm. Because my value is simply being. Right. Now, does that mean that I'm less motivated to try to do things? I don't think so. I think that the more you free people of this sort of fear of failure, the more you free people of this fear of, you know, whether, where they fit in in the hierarchy of, hum- of humanity, right? In their social structures. When you free them of that, you allow true expression to happen. And that expression means that they achieve more. Because let's face it, most laziness comes from a fear of failure it comes from i can't handle this i can't face it the reason why you can't face it is because you're uh, you're assigning far too much importance to this activity we are in a we are in this magical experience right called life and we don't know what happens before or what happened before or what's going to come next we can all have our uh, theories or you know our feelings about it but ultimately all that you've got is right now and you know, getting hung up on how successful you are in this tiny window of time of whatever, 80 years, 100 years, if you're lucky. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. seems entirely pointless to me. And, and also, you know, you talk about religion and, and God and, and everyone's sort of one of the atheist arguments against God is, well, if God exists, then why is there evil in the world? Again, I would go back to just, just, just totally take away the concept of morals altogether. Why do you think that there's an absolute morality? Mm. At the end of the day, I would apply it to function. If God's function is creation of existence, then job done.
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> do you know what I mean? Good. God is good, you know, because existence, we're here, mm-hmm. right?
1: Yeah.
0: And, and I think that the, the conflation of you know uh, moral absoluteness is a is a very is a very dangerous thing and what it does is it creates more potentially harmful acts than it than it than it resolves
1: um well if you look at most most of history's wars and atrocities it's it's that very thing that drives them it's a but what it is it's a twisting
0: of it's a twisting of things right it's it's like we were talking about technology and social media right if if you allow the ego to be so power hungry or so obsessed with, with achieving high value, when the concept of success and value is an absolute construction, mm-hmm. right that doesn't actually have bear any truth at all. The point is that the ego is driving this desire, and that desire means that you twist. Concepts that could be good, good in the sense of could lead to, to, to good social structures. For example, I do think that religion is a narrative. A lot of traditional theistic religions is a narrative that's created in order to help social fluidity, right? Like you say, let's not kill each other. Let's help each other. Mm-hmm. Do unto others as you would want to do unto yourselves, right? Is a is a very useful thing. It's like, well, you know what? Let's, instead of talking about morality, let's just talk about empathy. Mm-hmm. You know, let's just say, would you want that to be done to you? Okay. Then don't do it to other people. And yeah. essentially that's sort of the religious narrative, right? Whether or not you believe in Jesus or you believe it, it's sort of, um, all religious narratives sort of like to create this, this, this social, uh, structure, which is based upon that, like mm-hmm. just don't be an asshole. <laughs> and yet what happens is that people uh, throughout history take this sort of these this construction of value they become so driven by it that they then subvert the whole concept of the religion mm-hmm. to do evil things like start wars. Yeah. Yeah. Well the evil is not about one religion is better than another. The evil is not even in religion. the evil is in the ego that has manipulated people using constructions like you know whatever it might be in in, in, in this case it could be a political um, you know construction or it could be an economic construction it could be uh, you know a uh, 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 identity construction right whatever it the construction is there are people who are so unenlightened in terms of their uh, belief that their ego is everything, Mm -hmm. the car is out of control and they, they have no way of getting out of the driver's seat. Right. You're talking about this, this concept of observation. Well, the the concept of observing yourself is, is in my mind, it's like being in an in an out of control car and just going, well, let me get out of the car and observe it being out of control. And the moment you do that, it, it becomes in control again, right? Because you have left the car, right? So essentially the car can't drive itself. And if you don't have that, any kind of enlightenment in that area, and you can't do that act of separation and observing and recognizing the fabricated nature of, of value, then you end up just chasing it.
1: I can, I can think of one person that epitomizes that perfectly. And his name rhymes with Ronald Rump. Uh, But to be honest with you, I think that
0: that so many politicians uh, across the spectrum, so many politicians, so many people in positions of power um, and influence get to that place because they are somehow obsessed with the idea of being a valuable person. Now that could mean valuable in many different ways, valuable to society, more valuable to, uh, you know, in terms of riches or power. But I do think that no matter what, the value structure is wrong. We should relinquish all value. We should just take it away. Everyone has the same value. It doesn't matter if you're rich, poor, left, right, whatever it may be, and take away the moral, take away this sort of, moral way of looking at the world. And I think that by doing that, you will achieve much more harmony. But I realize that's quite a radical
1: opinion. I I do agree. You know, I had a conversation with this guy. Again, I may have mentioned this to you before. Um, I guess you could call him the spiritual teacher. He's a meditation coach. And I was asking him about morality and I was asking him about good and evil. And I was like, you know, how can we say that the nature of um, of reality is, is goodness, is love, is bliss. And, and, and when all of these atrocities and, and just horrible things happen around the world all the time, every single day, and he said, this is his philosophy, which I found really interesting. He said that, and, and again, this is not necessarily my belief system, but I find this really interesting is that the universe or God or source energy or pure consciousness or whatever you want to call that um is potentially streamed into our consciousness as we're we're these human bodies and we have little slivers of this this source of consciousness this like essential part of the universe that comes through us and experiences the world like we're like a television set and this um this signal is being beamed into our brains and through our brains, it filters and we experience the world and that that information is sent back to the source. And now this is a radical idea, but he said that imagine if, if if this is the case, everything the universe is trying to do is learn. It's trying to understand itself. It's trying to perceive everything that it can. It's trying to take in all information that it possibly can so that it can fully observe and understand itself um, objectively through the form of a subjective experience. And if you can imagine, he said that, you know, you're looking at all these horrible things, all these beautiful things, wouldn't all of them be interesting? You know, maybe it's just us that has put the good, the bad, the beautiful, the love, the hate into that space. And really, everything that's happening from that essential perspective is Interesting is learning is taking in information, which is just you know it's a pretty full on concept. But it was something that I found really interesting.
0: But I do I do to look look everything everything is perspective, right? If I walk out of this studio right now and I step on a an ant, mm. that's one life lost. Yeah, and there's uh let's let's say that there is there is going to be an element of suffering there. Uh, Or if, uh, you know, I don't know, if you're a meat eater, you know, there's going to be, um, you are uh, involved in some form of suffering. The idea that you can somehow extricate yourself from any any involvement in suffering altogether and just lead this sort of, you know, somehow uh, morally perfect life. That concept itself, I think, causes a lot of problems and causes a lot of evil. Mm. You understand what I mean? Yeah. It's that searching for that or that hunting for that that actually leads people down very corrupt pathways, right? Because you start to justify acts. Mm. Do you know what I mean? You start to justify certain ways of being, which may be lacking tolerance. Or lacking, you know, a, a, a true understanding of perspective. So, on a very small scale, there has been some suffering, right? So in other parts of the universe, I'm sure there there is suffering happening. But all of this is based upon a subjectivity—the from the ant to a human to who, whatever form to a rock, you know. And I do agree. Um, to some extent not completely but to some extent with the concept of panpsychism the idea that consciousness is in everything and it and it ultimately you know we, it's more maybe more uh, aware in complex structures like the sun probably has extreme consciousness because i mean if you're talking about like you know uh, consciousness arising in the the due to the electrical uh, manifestations in our brain then you think about like vastly complex electrical structures like mm-hmm. the milky way or the sun right mm-hmm. so i think that we uh, we we run the risk of due to our sort of ego believing that our our state of scale is the most important do you know what i mean yeah and yeah. therefore judging sort of morality on that scale right but it might be that it is just like the the crushing of that ant, you know, that it's a tiny little spot in what is essentially vastly wider processes. Mm. There's going to be destruction happening and creation happening as the universe ages and gets older all the time.
1: Mm. <laughs>
0: so for you to start to assign that's morally good and morally bad and start to say that that the the idea of a moral absoluteness the idea that god is pure love and that you know god only wants good things to happen it's like well yeah i think that that is probably a bit simplistic
1: yeah for you sure. know
0: yeah i th- i understand the reason why because people like to sort of assign themselves to well why should i as i said celebrate life and celebrate god uh, and 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 worship let's say if it's not all love and gravy, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But then you're making the assumption that God cares either way, whether or not you worship him or her or it.
1: Mm.
0: I mean, why, why is, why can't God be ambivalent to that?
1: Yeah.
0: You know, why can't we just uh, celebrate existence for the majesty that it is? And I truly believe that by doing that, we will find that we act in more, traditionally morally good ways. Mm. Do you know what I mean? By relinquishing it, our, f- our true nature comes out. And I do believe our true nature is not to contribute to, uh, suffering. Mm-hmm. But again, that again might be just my rationalization because I don't want to uh, feel like I'm an evil person. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Or that I'm morally, uh, whatever I'm, I'm heartless. You know? Yeah. I, I, just, I just think that we need to strip it back to, to the fundamental. The fundamental is consciousness and being is all that we should value. And we should celebrate the fact that we have this, um, this unique moment in time where we are able to express that consciousness as an individual as a human being Mm. and not to get caught up in other fabrications that come from essentially sort of egoic, uh, pursuits. I don't know. Is that bullshit?
1: No, that's not bullshit. You know, I was having a conversation with Laura the other day, um, about sort of, you know, we, I guess the, the ideal scenario in our lives is to be doing something that, makes us feel deeply connected with ourselves that becomes our true purpose i think everybody strives to or deeply desires whether consciously or unconsciously to experience a profession or a hobby or something where they get into flow they feel like when they're doing it that is the thing they were born to do you know and um in that sense you are doing you are expressing your true nature you are expressing the fullness of who you are and whether you perceive it this way or not, what you're here to do in a way. But what we were talking about was, that's a beautiful concept. And I was, I'm was i reading this book right now um, by a guy named Damien Eccles. Uh, it's called High Magic. Very interesting. And I'll, um, I'll send you the link to it. But this is his philosophy is that essentially the purpose for us as humans is to get to that place where we can find what our true purpose is. But what about the people whose true purpose is, I mean, and forgive me for going to this dark corner is, to kill people, you know, like, what if some, like, what if that is essentially someone's full expression of who they are? You know, is that, does that mean that they're broken? Does that mean that they're, uh, what, how does that factor in? Because for me, that's like a complete mind fuck, you know? Yeah. Well,
0: see, I would fundamentally disagree with this whole approach, which is I don't believe that this idea of, finding your true purpose. I think you found it, you're being, you're living, that's it done. Yeah. Like, because I think that the search for it causes a lot of upset. Mm. How many people have said, Oh, I don't feel like I found who I want to be or who I, you know, uh, Mm. I don't feel like I'm in the profession that, you know, all, all of this stuff, you know, and people, are uh, scared of making decisions because is this the right decision? Is this, am I following my true path? Or, all of this stuff, right? <laughs> I personally think it's, again, a case of just go with it. Yeah. Because you've achieved your full purpose. You're alive. That's it. You're done. <laughs> and and I think that a lot of people suffer from the idea that they can't find their true purpose Yeah. or, you know, and they're, they're unhappy in their job or whatever it might be and all the rest of it. And, and I think that what letting go allows people to do is it allows people to have the freedom uh, to, to, to make decisions without worrying about, whether or not they're going to regret it or whether or not it's going to fail or succeed or all the rest of it. And I think that naturally you will sort of like a, I don't know, like a snowboard going down a mountain. You'll find a path Mm -hmm. that just you fit into naturally. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: I think that it's again an act of letting go. It's an act of not trying to find anything Mm -hmm. that is the most successful way of leading you down pathways that are going to be fulfilling to you in some way, rather than this constant worry and doubt as to whether or not you are uh, following your true purpose. And then moving on to your idea of... The, the people who who kill mass murderers, serial killers, you know, this idea of were they born this way, Were they not born this way, you know, is there such a thing as pure evil, you know, all of this stuff. I think that there's enough evidence to say that there are people that are born with less empathy than mm-hmm. others. And I bring it back down to empathy. Uh, there's enough studies that that show that there are people who are born and and psychopaths definitely you know it 's not just about their experience in their life but there there is there there are people that are born with less empathy but does that mean that they 're evil? I think that the evil acts come from again primarily come from the concept of value. Mm-hmm. like because what it, because things become uh, again uh, conflated in the wrong way so for example uh, as a a businessman let's say right
1: mm-hmm.
0: let's say that you believe that your function as a businessman is to make profit yeah yeah um and therefore in order for you to be a good again this this idea of good right to be a good businessman uh is defined by the bottom line Therefore, you are willing to excuse all sorts of nefarious and evil acts, right? In terms of maybe, you know, I don't know, uh, towards the environment or towards uh, other people or towards your staff or towards whoever. Mm-hmm. You are able to justify it because ultimately you are thinking that you are doing good, which is to be a good businessman. And so if your concept of being good uh somehow relates to feeling more powerful than other people then how what can you justify doing mm. and i think that a lot of evil acts like uh killing uh wars and all of that it's it all comes from a similar place which is somehow the concept of what it means for them to be to feel valuable Or feel, let's say, high up on the on the hierarchy of humanity, have become corrupted, and I think that therefore the best thing to do is just to to dismantle that whole fabrication to begin with.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. The more you dismantle that fabrication and just go, no, everyone's as good as each other. And to be honest with you, uh, you know, the value of a mass murderer versus the the value of a saint, on its fundamental level, there's no difference sounds, again, very radical, right? But, you know, it, it, it's this idea that we, 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 we take away all judgment. Mm. Um, I think that it may sound like you're going to end up in this world of anarchy, but my suspicion is that you'll end in a world that is much more harmonious because mm. there's no justification then for doing anything else.
1: <laughs> That's beautifully said. I, you need to write a book, man,
0: honestly. If, if there was any book I'd write, it would be a children's book.
1: Yeah, I guess you can. I mean, explore a lot of these things in a, a very simple way. I mean, Laura's actually—I don't know if I told you—Laura's um, finishing off a children's book right now. She's really? Yeah, <laughs> she can give you some tips.
0: Uh, it's beautiful. I, I I would love to write a children's book. Uh, I think that there would be it would be such a fascinating exercise to do to try to take ideas that are so sort of far-reaching and 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 you know in a way complex and try to simplify it into a language with symbolism that, that, that you could get through to a child. And that would be such an amazing thing.
1: I was wondering what, um, having a, a kid has like, has that altered your perspective on life reality? I mean, obviously like it's a huge moment. Has, has, have you noticed any shifts, any significant big shifts?
0: Uh, no, I think the only thing that, nothing in terms of a sort of um, philosophical, you you know, ideas. I think that what's amazing is being in it, right? So there's a difference between, say, reading a book about, I don't know, romance and then being in love. So even though you sort of know all the cues, once you're there in it, it's just a magical experience. And what it certainly does reinforce is... Like you were talking before, this, this, um, to see the wonder of, of consciousness sort of unf- unfolding and developing mm-hmm. is just such a, it's such a remarkable thing, you know, to, to, to witness it and to, to be a part of, of, you know, uh, to facilitate it in some ways, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? To allow mm-hmm. that to happen however it wants to happen is a beautiful thing. So, um, I guess, yeah, it's life changing in the sense that you are experiencing something that you've only sort of read about before, um, and uh, and that's amazing. And I think all parents would say that. I think that I'm not so much of this parent that sort of goes, my whole life changed when I had it when I looked into my baby's eyes. You know, yeah. in the sense that, like, it wasn't like it it wasn't like there was some new information that I was given. It was just that I'm now in it rather than hearing about it, mm. you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, but it's, it certainly does make you empathetic. I think I, I would imagine, I think that the biggest change actually that I've noticed, I was talking to Celine about it is I feel more care and love for all children. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I wasn't expecting that. I was expecting it to be quite selfish. Like this is my child. (laughs) And I want to like, you know, you know, love and take care of my child. But certainly I've noticed that I, you you look at other babies and you just, you you know, you, you feel love for, for, for other babies more. I don't Mm. know. It's a, it might be a chemical process, but it, it certainly is. It certainly is powerful. You feel like this parental gene has been turned on.
1: <laughs> That's beautiful, man. You know, I, I find the the concept of becoming a parent, like, I guess I perceive in like a spiritual way, I guess. And in the sense that I guess the, the feeling is that you're, you're, bringing, uh, you're bringing a consciousness into the world. You're bringing like you're a steward, essentially. You're, you're guiding yeah. this consciousness into the world and allowing it to like you said, unfold, unfurl in its own way, you know, rather than rigidly controlling as, you know, if we go back to, you know, hundreds of years ago, how, how parenting would happen. It was just about control. And nowadays there's this, I guess, more sense of, of openness and freedom and allowing children to become whoever they want to be without judgment. And I think that's just so beautiful. Um, And the very fact that that's made from you and, and, Most of the time, hopefully, (laughs) in most people's cases, the um, the love of your life or the person that you feel most connected to in this world, you know, it's like that's crazy. (laughs) Like it's such a beautiful concept.
0: I mean, it 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 is. It's beautiful, and it certainly does. uh, It does again highlight very starkly the impermanence of life. Right, you start to feel your mortality a lot more when you have a child, for sure. You start to sort of think, you know, things like, "Am I going to be alive when she gets married? Am I going to be alive when she, you know, has her first child?" Or you know what I mean? So all of those, all of those uh, deeply rooted concept of mortality and the the feeling of your own impermanence is definitely brought to the surface. But what's interesting is that given the right sort of training, and and I think you you will experience this. Uh, when you become a parent is that you can sort of let it go and celebrate it and just go, you know what? Yes. I'm not going to see everything that this person does, but that's fine. It's okay. You know, I accept it. I celebrate that impermanence is, is the, is the fundamental requirement for life. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I, I accept it, but it certainly does make you like face those things in, in quite a stark way. Um, but also, um, we've, we're trying very hard not to teach morality, but only teach empathy. Mm-hmm. I think that's the most important thing. Just teach empathy. That's all. From empathy stems all the thing, the good things of morality, but sort of um, bypasses all the potential corruption.
1: Have you ever um, watched any Dave Chappelle stand-up before?
0: Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> it's
1: like, there's this one stand-up where Dave Chappelle like talking about his son who was like two or three at the time or something and he's like oh my son he made me a necklace out of macaroni and he he put on a string he tied it around my neck and I he told me he was proud of me (laughs) he's like and I like I looked down at my son and I got all choked up and and his son was like are you sad daddy and he said son you're too young to understand this but this is fucking crazy you used to live in my balls, man. <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> it's just like that crazy realization that, whoa, this, this human, oh, we created this human, you know. It's just so beautiful.
0: It's remarkable. You do have to sort of just pinch yourself and just go, well, how, did it, how exactly did we do this apart from <laughs> the, the act? You yeah. know, like, how, how did we manage to do that exactly? And it's just, it is amazing. Amazing thing to 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 think that that's possible, and it just shows you how like uh, consciousness and life just just continues to blossom. You know, mm-hmm. it just can it will continue. It always will continue. Mm-hmm. You know, and the idea of you were talking about before about us essentially being antennas for consciousness is mm-hmm. a similar idea to sort of panpsychism—the idea that you know everything that 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 consciousness. Um, is a precursor to matter, you know, that matter essentially is, um, is just a, a conduit in which consciousness sort of can exist. Mm. Um, but it can exist outside of, of, of it as well. And you do just look, you know, you look into your child's eyes and you think, how did that spark of consciousness come? You know, how is it manifesting itself right now in that brain of yours? You know, Mm. when you're, when you're looking at me inquisitively or you're learning or you're, taking in information like it's it's uh, a <laughs> it's uh, amazing you know and the the study of consciousness is just so much in its infancy right now
1: yeah how it unfolds in our lifetimes is going to be incredible i mean we're going to have some amazing i mean it's sciences in a way trying to catch up with a lot of i guess the spiritual te- teachings primarily from the east you know
0: yeah well, it's coming full circle, isn't it? What, what's amazing is you start to see this development of science um, over the over the decades, over the hundreds of years in its relatively short history mm-hmm. of modern science, you know, and you start to see that the further it goes, especially obviously in physics, it starts to move much more full circle and the, the circle sort of joins and you start to see that these concepts of the, the Buddhists, the Stoics, the Taoists – you know they start to yeah they start to be um, to be given more credence um, and it's it's a shame that you start you you see a reaction against that you know you see a lot of sort of people who claim to be sort of hard science that are actually being very unscientific because you know true science you know has to be constantly questioning prevailing science right that's the whole point of true science is that you're you're continuously questioning uh any assumptions mm-hmm. right and this sort of materialist assumption which has been dominating you know modern science and physics for for uh for quite some years has to be questioned with all of the the, the new findings that are out there mm-hmm. um and um you know it's it's happening and especially with ai you know it has to happen what does it mean to be alive you know what does it mean to be conscious? And if you could sort of digitize that, would that still be, would that still be consciousness or would that still be life? Or if it could be something that is, that uh, emerges out of complexity, then how complex do the machines need to be before we can somehow channel consciousness? It's a sort of a, we're definitely entering that area, which is a, it's going to be interesting. It's going to be an interesting few decades.
1: Well, you know, Elon Musk talks about how he believes that it's very likely, statistically speaking, that we are in, we are a simulation of a, what, futuristic society, um, which is what an insane concept to like, wrap
0: your head around totally totally insane on the surface for sure i mean you know and uh statistically i would say he's right just on the basis of probability Mm -hmm. you'd have to say that it's very unlikely that we live in what we thought was base reality Mm -hmm. um but at the same time isn't that just the same thing as talking about multiple universes? Mm. If you take that idea and you say, well, therefore, we're just sort of living in some computer game played by some futuristic society. Well, then you could say that they are as well and they are as well and they are as well. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. At, what point, at what point does it really matter for us to talk about base reality? Exactly. You know, it's sort of more just like there is just is you know there's there's also a lot of studies that are happening that think that information is the base of reality mm-hmm. that information pre- is a precursor to matter right that the the information of the the momentum spin of particles etc that's that information is is the base of everything so when you're looking at waves crashing against a shore that it's just a, a mind blowing amount of bits like you know megabits you know we have you know now but it would be like i don't know quadrillion bits you know for every single wave that's crashing against the 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 shore so that information is everything but then that just is talking about the matrix essentially again that it's just code
1: have you listened to uh have you ever listened to joe rogan's podcast i forgot if we've talked about this before
0: i've listened to quite a few of his podcasts yeah
1: there's one with with Sean Carroll. Sean Carroll is like one of the leading uh, oh, yeah, particle yeah. physicists from um, Caltech. And no, he talked about, which blew my mind, like he, he sort of broke down the multi-worlds theory, which he believes. And he's literally one of the most knowledgeable people in particle physics in the entire world. And He literally believes that we are existing in a multiverse where every decision that we make just bubbles off into another into another universe but for us it seems completely seamless we just go from existence to existence that blows my mind that like he's not a spiritual person he is he is just a a science brain and uh and just a yeah that's
0: that's exactly what i'm saying is like you know the more you dive into the the real sort of um cutting edge areas of science, the more it starts to, I mean, if you start to listen to the way that a lot of these um, physicists talk, they're they're talking exactly the same language, right? As mystics in the past, you know, talking about multiple universes, talking about um, consciousness being uh, a precursor to matter, talking about observation affecting reality. In other words, you can never separate the subjective from the from from objective that there is no such thing as objectivity that you know that the that the, the light of the uh, from distant galaxies are affected by your observation of them you know so you talk about quantum entanglement the fact that two particles can be observed and they can be a million miles apart but they they change when one is observed the other one changes at the same time right so that you start to take away the concept of space as an important factor and you talk about the block universe and you talk about the fact that time the future is existing now and passes you know the language that they're talking is just like wow okay so you you're just talking the same language again yeah
1: yeah
0: i personally have a problem with the multiverse just and i think that it's just i i i'm unable to compute the infinite variations of every decision that every person animal thing in the entire universe that's happening at any one time is creating divergent universes just just the the, the sheer you know, size of that, I find very difficult to compute.
1: <laughs> that, yeah. <laughs> I don't head. even know if our brains are, can physically store that kind of information.
0: No, I think that that's, that is, that is truly mind blowing. I, I'm, I'm more sort of, um I guess, uh traditional in that base. I still, I do think, and it is just a thought and a feeling and an instinct rather than anything based on certainty. But I do think that, we are living in one universe i I disagree with the the multiverse theory. I think we are living in one universe. I think that that universe is ultimately uh, consciousness that I do believe in a in, in more idealistic point of view that consciousness predates matter um, that consciousness drives matter. I do have a, a lot of affinity towards the The idea of uh, consciousness being the driver of the universe and that we eventually will reach a point of such entropy that there will only be emptiness. And when emptiness happens, time ceases to exist because time requires matter. So once time ceases to exist, we'll reach a point of no time and then there will be another big bang and then we'll all start again. (laughs) I'm more of I'm more of a sort of linear, single universe kind of man. Me, but that's just me.
1: I, don't mm. know. I mean, I, I I agree with the consciousness predating matter, and I've had experiences um, with various things that have taken me to places beyond my ego, to a place that felt more like home than this reality does. Some a place of remembering the true nature of consciousness, like where it was, where I had to forget who I was, which was terrifying. And that was that for me in a lot of ways, totally shook up my understanding of, of who we are and what our, our true nature is. It was a very, I've had some intense experiences of going to that source of consciousness, um, and then coming back to this. And it's, and it feels like a piece, only a small piece of what I experienced there. You know, a lot of people have that through meditation and, and, Again, breathwork and yoga
0: and stuff like that. Yeah. I, well, I mean, that's it's yeah, it's it's remarkable that people can achieve that through breathwork and meditation. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's uh, I I don't think I've had anywhere near the level of experience that you have had regarding this, but um, I certainly can imagine it and certainly can sense it that that consciousness is the precursor. But uh, ultimately, the truth is we we don't know.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, and also like going to those places are, they can be so frightening and intense that sometimes they're more detrimental than they are beneficial. And ultimately, you know, like I've said, my philosophy is that this is what we should be doing. This is it. We are in it, you know. So to be here, to be here now, as Das says, you know, is ultimately the goal, you know.
0: To be here now, being. Let's just keep being human beings. That's all that matters. <laughs> yeah. Listen, Adam, we could talk for ages, but uh, I think that we've we've uh, we've we're nearly hitting two hours on this.
1: Oh wow! I didn't <laughs> even look,
0: man. I know that's the sign of a good conversation. Uh, as always, an absolute pleasure to chat with you um next time we've got to do it over some tea yes so many other subjects to to talk about i would certainly love to dive further into some of the more descriptive elements of some of your experiences because i think that would be an interesting ride to to jump on Mm. but we'll have to leave it there thank you so much for for having this chat with me thanks for having me man all right man take care all right you too speak to you soon see ya bye bye